0: How many of us can say that we truly, truly appreciate brutal honesty? Brutal honesty. Brutal honesty is a term that I use in reference to um, you know, a, a truth that just needs to be told even though it doesn't necessarily feel so good. That's a brutal truth. It doesn't feel good, but you've got to say it anyway. For example, I, I was at the dentist the other day, which is everybody's favorite place to go, right? Uh, yeah, n- not mine. Um, so I was at the dentist the other day, and she was trying to kind of you know, ease the bad news into me. And so she was kind of beating around the bush a little bit. And, I, you know, finally I said, just be brutally honest with me. <laughs> Don't, you know, just, just tell me, because the anticipation w- was killing me. You know, t- tell me what the damage is. Um, and I figured that, yeah, you know... Um, it sounds like it's going to be something that will shock me. It didn't shock me too much. Uh, but the anticipation of the diagnosis was killing me. So I was asking, just be brutally honest with me. Go ahead. Lay it on me. Um, anybody in here ever heard of an actor named David Arquette? Yes. Okay, most of you have heard of him. Okay, he said this. He said, quote, I'm not very self-aware about my career. I probably should be more so. Just to be brutally honest, it's not like I have every movie at my fingertips. And for those of you who have never even heard of David Arquette, I guess that kind of proves the point that he's trying to make. It validates the statement. Um, Unlike, you know, maybe some Hollywood stars, uh, he's at least willing to be brutally honest about the fact that while he has had some success with acting, and I think he was actually in professional wrestling for a while, uh, it's not like producers are banging down his door to get him lined up, you know, and cast into their next film. Uh, so that's brutal honesty. It doesn't necessarily feel good, but that's what the truth is. Uh, if you watch sports, um, it, when a team goes into halftime with a major deficit, the coach's job is to rally the troops, to get the team composed, uh, mentally focused, and prepared for the second half. And the, the number one way of doing that is with brutal honesty, a few weeks ago. Any of you guys watch football? Some of you guys watch football? Anybody watch that Broncos and Chargers game a few weeks ago? Halftime. The Chargers are winning 24 to nothing. And Peyton Manning looked horrible in the first half. The whole Broncos team looked horrible in the first half. They came out in the second half and the Broncos scored 35 unanswered points to win the game 35 to 24. One of the greatest comebacks I have ever seen in 30-plus years of watching professional sports. I actually haven't been watching them since the day I was born, I don't think. So, yeah, one of the greatest comebacks I've ever seen. And how do you think they got to the point where they could have such a horrible first half and come out in the second half and just clean house? It wasn't like, I I guarantee you, the coach didn't go in at halftime and say, great job, guys, way to play your hearts out. You guys are just doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing and play with all of your heart and we'll pull it out. No, I guarantee you he went in there with some brutal honesty and said, you guys aren't doing this. You guys aren't doing that. This is what we need to do. And they come out and they win. When a team rallies like that, from a huge deficit like that it's a it's a pretty strong indication that there was some brutal honesty at halftime today we're going to see jesus say some things that are brutally honest one of you will betray me one who is eating with me that's what he says in verse 18 you will all fall away all of you that's what he says in verse 27 brutal honesty painful truth. And it's going to throw them for a loop because all of them, all of them have remained loyal to Jesus, with one exception, Judas Iscariot. In our study in the book of Mark, we just saw in our last lesson a pretty interesting contrast between Mary, who in this act of worship poured out a vial of extremely expensive perfume on Jesus as a means of anointing him and preparing him for burial, uh, and we saw the contrast between her and her actions and the actions of the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas as they conspired to kill Jesus. We saw that wicked fruit comes from a wicked root uh, and this plan to kill Jesus before the Passover Uh, had been put into motion as Judas Iscariot had agreed to participate in this conspiracy to assassinate the only perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth. And how ironic, how ironic and sad, maybe pathetic, that Judas Iscariot would get so bent out of shape about this expensive bottle of perfume being poured out on Jesus, but then he's willing to sell Jesus out for just a little bit of money. How sad, how tragic. And the reason, of course was pretty simple. Just a, a conflict of value systems. Judas had the world's value system. The, the world's value system is to look out for number one. Act in your own best interests first and foremost. And if you have any love left over, then you, you can spread it around to people who you know, are, are closest to you, most like you uh, maybe. But that's the only explanation for his actions. There's a conflict of value systems. Nothing else would make any sense. And so we pick it up today. In Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 16, is where we'll start. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So one of the things that that I can't help but notice here, I can't miss this, is that all of these preparations, which are, are pretty... Pretty complicated. There's a lot to take care of because there are a lot of them together. There are a lot of people. Uh, These preparations have all been made in advance. Just like, remember, when, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Somewhere along the line, Jesus had prepared in advance for this donkey to be ready for him to ride into Jerusalem. Similarly, Jesus has made prior arrangements for the Passover feast. The Passover feast, of course, involved the spilling of blood, of the lamb as a sacrifice, which commemorated Israel's escape from slavery uh, under the Egyptian empire. The Israelites had been instructed back in the book of Exodus to, uh, to paint the, uh, the, the shed blood of the lamb on their doorposts as a means of saving their firstborn children from the wrath of God coming in and destroying all of the firstborn children in, uh, in Egypt. And as I think about that event... And when you, when you look at, at you know, when, when God instructed them to paint their doorposts with, uh, with lamb's blood and, and all these things, you know, I, I can't help but think that the Israelites would have been at least tempted to ask, what good is that going to do? What good is the blood of a lamb on a doorpost going to do? See, the blood of an animal has never, ever saved anyone from God's wrath. Never. But the faith that's involved in doing so. Just being, obedient, just being obedient, whether you understand or not, trusting that God is righteous and he's true, and thus being obedient, whether you understand it or not. Faith is the factor that pleases God, eliciting God's grace, and thus the firstborn children were spared of God's wrath. And of course, the Passover was a foreshadowing event. It, it foreshadowed Jesus' work on the cross when his blood, The innocent, the only innocent lamb of God would be shed in order that we might be spared from God's wrath by trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus' work on Calvary. So the Passover was, at the time and even still today, is a very important part of Jewish culture. They still observe it to this day. And so with that in mind, the disciples were wondering what Jesus wanted them to do to prepare for the Passover I wonder if they're thinking, you know, Jesus hasn't done anything, so we better get on the ball. We don't know. That's just speculation. But either way, they're wondering, what does Jesus want us to do to prepare for the Passover? But look at what they said. Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They come to him with with that question. They thought, they're thinking, that the work and the preparation that needed to be done was squarely on their shoulders. They thought that the work was completely up to them. But Jesus immediately reveals that while they do have some work and preparation to do, that, you know, he, he gives them a set of instructions. These are the things you have to do. He is the one who has made all of the arrangements and the preparations ahead of time. They do still need to be obedient. They do still have to follow these instructions that Jesus has given them, but he has prepared this task for them to do. And if there's anything for us to take away from this passage, from this part of our passage today, it's that when Jesus asks for something from us, he doesn't leave the work squarely on our shoulders. Rather, he's prepared works for us to do, and all that's required from us is some steadfastness, you know, agreeing to do it, and being obedient to do it, and you know, sticking with it, even when it gets tough. Now, the margin of your Bible if you have your Bible with you, write this down as a cross-reference. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice that it says, so that we would walk in them. Not that we could, but so that we would. There's a big difference there so that we would walk in them. These works were prepared beforehand. Just like here, Jesus has prepared this work beforehand. So the question that the disciples came to Jesus with, it reveals an eagerness on their part, a willingness to work for the benefit of Jesus, a willingness to do something for him. And it may not always be wise to follow the examples uh, that the disciples give us. In fact, I'd say, you know, nine times out of ten, you don't want to do what they've been doing. But this time, I think this is an exception. I think this time, they're setting a pretty good example <laughs> for us to follow. It looks like the disciples, after three years of following Jesus, are finally starting to catch on. They're willing to do work for Jesus, but they don't understand that he has already prepared their work for for them ahead of time, so the work isn't squarely on their shoulders. All they have to do is be obedient. See, God prepares works for us in advance as well. Our job is simply to be willing and obedient. The disciples could have just gone off on their own. I mean, it it wouldn't have surprised us, would it? I mean, given, given what we've seen them do and the way we've seen them act throughout the book of Mark, it wouldn't surprise us if they just went and did something on their own, would it? But no, they they don't do that. They they come and they consult the Lord. They come to him with this willingness, this eagerness to work. And of course, we see that the disciples were obedient here to exactly what Jesus had instructed them to do. And so everything fell perfectly into place accordingly because of their obedience to his commands. This represents just one, one small step in them learning that each step that we take is guided by the Lord and prepared ahead of time by the Lord. And this is what the partnership is supposed to look like. They ask, God instructs. They go, God provides. They work, God blesses. Ask, go, work. Work. Write that down. Ask, go, work. And you know, if you, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see the same pattern repeated over and over and over. Ask, go, work. Our job is simply to trust God's instructions and obey them. And that means having a willingness. There, there has to be a willingness on our part to be flexible, to be responsive, and to be ready. We don't know exactly what he will ask us to do, what he'll call us to do, But if we can be flexible enough, we can trust it's prepared in advance. He's gone ahead of us. He's prepared these works for us to do so that all we have to do is be obedient. You know, wherever he might send us, we can rest assured that he has already prepared every single step along the way. What a beautiful and perfect illustration of how faith and works work together. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time in the entire book of Mark that the disciples have gotten it right. This is the first time that they've done something that's, that's shown some serious growth and some serious maturity. This is the first time they've done something that might be worthy of applause. Hey, good job, guys. You guys are catching on. Way to go. This is the first time. But as we enter the Passover scene, it's time for a moment of brutal honesty from the Lord. And so we continue. Uh, Verses 17 to 21. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. You know, when we when we picture this scene, this is what we call the Lord's Supper, the, the Last Supper, something like that. When we picture this, it's far too easy for us to envision this, this painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And if you look at that painting, it looks like Jesus said, hey, everybody, gather around me on this one side of the table so we can take a picture for Facebook. <laughs> you know, uh, everybody's all on one side. And, you know, it's like, what's wrong with this, this backside right here? And uh, nobody's reclining. They're all sitting upright, and you know, uh, yeah. Uh, the reality is that the the painting by Da Vinci, it resembles the culture from the Middle Ages, um, but it doesn't resemble the culture from the first century. Uh, it looks at, the, the real scene would have looked nothing like uh, the scene in that painting. Um, first of all, nobody in. The painting is reclining. They're they're all sitting upright. Uh, But what we know, based on what we know about the culture and and the the customs and things like that, is that they would have been seated around a very low table, and they're all reclining, leaning on one another in a circle. All all in a circle, not not just on one side. Uh, It wouldn't have made a perfect picture because you would have got the back of somebody's head. Um, So this is an extremely, extremely intimate scene an extremely intimate scene. Maybe the, maybe the painting, I guess that's, that's based on somebody's perspective, but that doesn't look so intimate to me. The scene is actually very, very intimate. And, and John, the disciple John, he, he's got his head resting on Jesus' chest as they're sitting there eating. So this intimate environment is suddenly broken when Jesus announces to the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And the response is, they're in shock. They're in shock. None of them apparently saw this coming. I mean, you think of the week that these guys have had while they've been in Jerusalem. Man, it's, it's been a tough week. And this is how it's going to end? This is where it's all going to lead? They can hardly believe it. And so the disciples all begin Grieving. And John tells us in his account that Peter gestured uh, to Jesus and asked specifically which one of the 12 it would be. And so Jesus indicated that it would be the person who dips in the bowl at the same time that he does. So apparently, not one person other than Jesus and Judas knew that Judas Iscariot had already conspired to bring Jesus under arrest and ultimately death. And note that not one of the authors of the Gospels says that everyone was grieving except for Judas Iscariot. He's playing the role. He's playing the part. He's acting like he's grieving too. He's acting like he's completely shocked. Matthew tells us that Judas turned to Jesus and said, Surely not I, Rabbi. What's that all about? And so Jesus gives a kind of ambiguous answer. He says, You yourself have said it something that Judas would understand, but everybody else apparently didn't understand. See, it reminds me of when Jesus and the disciples are talking, and it, it, it's really about wheat and tares. He, he, Jesus uses the illustration of wheat and tares. Don't go out into the fields, he tells the disciples. Don't go out into the fields and pick the tares because you'll pick up some wheat and you'll miss some tares. And that's really an illustration of finding people who aren't really Christians, trying to identify in the church who's Christian, who's not, so that we can kick the ones out who aren't. And Jesus says, don't do it, because you really can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference, ultimately, between a wheat and tares. So don't do it. That's the job that's set up for my angels someday. So don't do it. And apparently, not one of the disciples here has been able to pick out the tear that's among them. So his words are true. We can't see the difference necessarily between a wheat and tare. We don't know the difference. God is the only one who ultimately knows the difference. So two people in the room <coughs> knew who it was, knew who was going to betray. And that is always the case when we're ready to give in to the temptation to sin. Jesus knows it, and we know it. And when we plot out a sin, we are just as guilty as Judas. Because maybe we're not handing him over to the Roman authorities or anything like that, but we are conspiring. We're we're planning on doing something that we know we shouldn't do. And so we betray him with our actions. When somebody calls themselves a follower of Jesus and yet they practice or endorse or celebrate sin uh, regularly and consistently, which which is more believable? Their words... Or their actions. In America, we have something that... It, it's, it's really kind of a proverb. It's an American saying, a slogan maybe, but it's really a proverb. Actions are louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And I, I think that's true. Because it's so easy, it's so e- too easy to just pay lip service to God. But he always sees right through the lip service. He sees right to the depths of our hearts even things that we don't realize, he sees it. He can point it out to us. So 11 of the 12 disciples were genuinely concerned. Get this. This is interesting. 11 out of the 12 of them are genuinely concerned that there might be something in them that would cause them to turn from Jesus. Because they're asking, is it me? So they they recognize there's something in me could, under the right circumstances, do this. Man, not, not one of them assumes that they are incapable of doing such a horrible thing. That's wisdom. It's wisdom. You know, they, they must have had such wisdom by this point to realize that we're always, we are always, every single one of us, we're always one bad decision away from betraying the one who is always faithful to us. One bad decision Wisdom dictates that we never completely trust even ourselves because there is something in us that can turn on a person in a heartbeat. Under the right conditions, we will turn. And there's something in us that keeps us doing that. That's why sin persists in our lives. It's because there's something in us. We're we're duplicitous. We're we're double-minded people. That's brutal honesty, but it's something that we must remain mindful of, lest we become consumed with pride and think, oh, I I would never do such a thing. No, these guys are asking, is it me? Bitterness leads to betrayal. And that's what we saw last week. Judas had bitterness in his heart because he had an agenda. There was a way that this was going to work out that he had his mind set on, and when that didn't happen, bitterness set in, and bitterness leads to betrayal. And so Jesus says, woe to the one who is going to do this, this awful thing. Woe to the one who is about to betray me. Not because all of this was out of Judas' ability to control, but because it was in his ability to control. It was something that he very easily could have avoided. He had plenty of time. I consider five minutes, by the way, to be plenty of time. He had plenty of time to back out of this deal, this conspiracy he had with the high priests and scribes. He had plenty of time to go to the Roman authorities and say, hey guys, there is a conspiracy that's on to kill this this Jewish leader. Just so you guys know, if if you want to step in and arrest these guys who are conspiring to kill this guy. He could have done these things, but he doesn't. And so Jesus says, whoa, to that person. Judas wouldn't let go of the bitterness and the hatred and the rage that was in his heart and thus he continued to follow the road that leads to destruction. And John tells us that after having dipped his morsel while Jesus dipped, Satan completely overcame Judas. He completely consumed Judas. And it's interesting that John uses the word consumed considering that they are about to consume Judas bread without Judas. We're going to get to that. So when Satan consumes Judas, Jesus turns to Judas and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And with that, Judas left the room. He left the building. Still, only Jesus and Judas knew what was about to go down. Because John tells us that the disciples, seeing that Judas was the treasurer, thought that he was going out to get more food or get more wine, or get more something. He's the one with the money, so he must be going out to buy something for us, is what they are thinking. But the feast continues in Judas's absence. So we pick it up in verses 22 to 25. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. <clears throat> And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what we have here is the first communion. And that, that of course, is the ordinance, the, the ceremony that Jesus instructed us to observe here in remembrance of him. So first he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, take it, this is my body. And I want us to notice something here. He does not say that his body is broken for us. He does not say his body is broken. That's something that people very, very commonly assume, that his body was broken. And when you know anything about uh, Roman um, capital punishment, you would think well, a person's body must be broken, but the Scriptures, nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that his body was broken. Look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, where we read, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, nothing about his body being broken. Not a single word. See, God's when he says, This is my body for you, what he's saying is that you are the one who should be up there on the cross tomorrow. But I, this body, is going to be up there for you. This body is for you. I'm going to absorb God's wrath. I'm going to take God's wrath on your behalf. But the body is not broken. In fact, there was a prophecy that dealt specifically with this issue. Psalm chapter 34, verse 20, where we read, He keeps all his bones not one of them is broken. And, of course, we know that this prophecy gets fulfilled. John tells us that when the, the Roman guards go around to, to expedite the process of death, well, what they would do is they would break the legs of the people up on the crosses, people being crucified, because then they couldn't support their body weight anymore, and they would just lean limp and die. They wouldn't be able to use their legs to, uh, to, to push up and breathe anymore. But John tells us that when they got to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and so they kept going. They didn't break his legs. They didn't need to break any of his bones. So the bread simply symbolizes Jesus' body, but that's where the symbolism ends. Jesus broke the bread as a means of distributing it, but not as a symbolic act of what was about to happen to his body. And that's that's a pretty common mistake that people make, and it's not a... Heresy, it's not blasphemy or anything like that. I think it's just a a misconception. Uh, But we need to understand that there was a specific prophecy that needed to be be fulfilled, that his body would not be broken. So how could Jesus go through what he went through uh, at the hands of the Romans and not have a a bone broken? I have no idea. I'll just say this. If Jesus can walk on water and be risen from the grave... Uh, sure, he can he can go through a Roman crucifixion without having any bones broken too. You know, it, it's it's possible. I guess I guess nothing is impossible with him. It's it, not even not even having or even having his bones uh, preserved and kept unbroken. And so next, the wine, which symbolizes his blood, which he says is poured out for our forgiveness. So the Passover meal traditionally involves four servings of wine. And most commentators, most scholars believe that this was the third, uh, the third serving of wine. Now, covenant is, is a promise. It's kind of like, like an oath. Uh, and thus, when we partake of communion, it's really to remember that Jesus has promised that what he endured on our behalf was more than sufficient. His grace is enough. His sacrifice on our behalf is was enough. There's no sin that's greater than his sacrifice. It's his shed blood that reconciled us to God. And that's something that he wanted us to to do to, to make sure. He wanted us to do this regularly to make sure that we remember exactly why it is that we're forgiven. It's because of him. It's not because of us. It's not because of anything we've done. It's all because of what he did for us. And this is the new covenant. That the sacrifice of animals would no longer be sufficient. The sacrifice of animals would no longer be necessary as it was excuse me, as it was with the old covenant. And look at what Jesus tells them. He says that this is the last time that he will drink the fruit of the vine until he drinks it in the new kingdom of God. And so at this point, they're probably at the fourth serving of wine, and Jesus doesn't drink it. He passes on it. As his way of saying, basically, when I walk into the new kingdom, that's when we will finish this meal. The fourth cup is taken with the words, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. From Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. And so Jesus is saying, guys, this meal isn't done until I return someday, just like I have promised. Let's continue. Verses 26 to 31. I told you I'd, I'd get through all these. Verses 26 to 31. After singing a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me Three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. And I love, I love how they end this meal. They end it by, by singing a hymn together. That's something that... It's difficult to picture a group of men in the first century. You know, these guys are kind of rough. Uh, but they're, it's hard to picture them singing a hymn together, but that's what they're doing. They're singing a hymn. Now, we, we can't be 100% sure, I guess... If this was one of the psalms, or you know what exactly it was that they were singing, but traditionally the Passover hymn, which concludes the meal, is taken from Psalms uh, one sixteen to one eighteen, and it's significant that this passage, Psalms one sixteen to one eighteen, end with these words: "Bind the festal, bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar." Mm. So, having finished the song. They leave Jerusalem and they head out toward the Mount of Olives. The disciples probably think they're headed toward Bethany because they're in Jerusalem. They probably think they're, they're headed toward Bethany again. But they only get as far as the Mount of Olives. And it's at this point while they're walking that John records this lengthy discourse that Jesus gives his disciples in the book of John between uh, John chapter 13, verse 31, and chapter 17, verse 26. It's while they're walking out to, uh, to the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden, if you notice... Maybe it's because they've had some wine, maybe it's because this has been a great night that they've had together. They don't seem to be too concerned with the impending betrayal of Jesus at this point. But suddenly Jesus turns to them and he says, you will all fade away. Just kind of out of the blue. You will all fade away. I mean, here, these guys have been questioning themselves earlier and and questioning the Lord earlier, am I going to be the one who betrays you? And now Jesus says, every single one of you is going to abandon me. What what a sad moment this must have been for Jesus. Because this passage very clearly reveals that he knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what was going to happen. How did he know? Well, at least partially because he knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament scriptures and it, it prophesied of this. But the Spirit may have also given him some insight that it is happening tonight. See, there was a, a specific fulfillment of a prophecy that needed to come, and it's the prophecy that Jesus quotes here from, uh, from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And Matthew adds that Jesus tells them that it's going to happen that night. It's going to happen that night. In fact, their abandoning of Jesus is only about 23 verses ahead of this verse at this point. Which is amazing. I mean, if you, if you look through the book of, of Mark, you see that, that you know, these guys have had the most faithful day of their lives. They finally got something right. Really right. This has been the most faithful day of their lives, and this is when they are the most vulnerable. This is when they are going to commit their greatest act of treason on the heels of the most faithful day of their lives. Amazing. And this is yet another moment of brutal honesty, painful truth from Jesus. But it needs to be said, the disciples are about to leave him high and dry. And this time, he is the only one who knows it. These guys have had the best day that they've had together in three years. The best day in three years. The disciples have demonstrated some serious maturity, but it won't be enough in just a few hours. And never forget this. Never forget this. When we have reached our greatest spiritual heights, we're at the greatest risk of of reaching our greatest spiritual lows. When we reach our greatest spiritual heights, we're at the greatest risk of falling to our greatest lows. That's why there's no room for pride. No room for pride when it comes to walking with Jesus. And then Jesus predicts something else. A time of forgiveness. You guys are going to fall away, but I've already... In, 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 my, in, in all of eternity, I already know I'm going to forgive you guys. This is, this is all going to be put behind us. He's going to reu- reunite with them in Galilee after he's been raised from the dead. As he's foretold them so many times before, he's told them so many times, I'm going to die. But, he, he always adds this, he, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And it's like they never quite get it. Even, even now, they, they, they don't seem to quite get it. So Galilee is where restoration will be made and forgiveness will be received and their relationship will be mended. It's as good as done. Jesus knows this is what's going to happen. But Peter protests, claiming that even if everyone else jumps ship, he will be the only one, the only one who will remain steadfast in his faithfulness to Jesus. Peter, the one whom Satan has specifically requested to sift, to put through the ringer. And Jesus told Peter, this is what Satan's asking you, and, and we've granted that. The Father and I, we, we've let it happen. It's going to happen. You are going to be sifted. You, your life, your faith, it's all going through the ringer, Peter. But then you're going to be strong again. So Peter knows that this is happening. He, he knows that this is coming. And so he's still thinking, I would never fall away from Jesus. I would never do such a thing. Notice that he doesn't doubt that the others will do it. He only says, I won't do this. He doesn't say, we would never do this. He says, I won't do this. He just honestly doesn't believe that he would join them. For all the trash and all the garbage that we can talk about Peter, he at least had the courage to always say what was on his mind. Sometimes it takes courage. Sometimes it takes a little bit of stupidity, and, and just, whoops, uh, that came out, but it needed to be said. Peter always had the courage, the bravery, to say what he was thinking. When everyone was silent, maybe when everyone else is thinking, "Peter, you just need to put a sock in it," he had the bravery to say exactly what he was thinking, even if he wasn't great at articulating it, necessarily. So maybe we should just say that Peter is a great lesson in how to be bold enough to speak up, but humble enough to be obedient. But Jesus sees that Peter's trust is in Peter at this point. Peter is trusting in Peter in his own determination, in his own strong iron will, his own strength, his own ability to remain faithful and true to Jesus. But Jesus knows that in times like this, when we feel like we're at our strongest, we are actually at our weakest. Times when we're at our strongest are the times when we are at our most vulnerable. When we're at our weakest. And so Jesus tells Peter that before the rooster crows twice, he will deny Jesus. Not once, three times. You're going to do this three times, Peter, before the rooster crows. Yet another moment of brutal, painful, heartbreaking honesty. He knows that all this arrogance that Peter has, all this self-assuredness, all that determination is like walking on a thin layer of ice in the middle of Las Vegas in the middle of summer. Thin layer of ice on a blistering hot day. And isn't it ironic that the rooster's crow will be the reminder of Peter's betrayal? Now the is kind of funny to watch because they, they, they puff out their chest. They look arrogant. They look like they're all full of confidence and full of themselves, Right? I mean, are, are they showing off? Um, you know, or are they trying to be macho? Is it a mating thing? You know, I, I honestly have no idea. When, when Christina and I were living in Dallas, uh, when I was in seminary the first time, there was a rooster across the way behind our apartment that would wake us up every morning at the crack of dawn. Every single morning. As soon as there was even a glimmer of sunshine on the horizon, that thing was making all kinds of noise. Um, See, a a rooster is an animal that always seems to be making noise when it shouldn't. (laughs) The rooster is the animal that wakes you up. And guess who needed a wake-up call? Peter. Peter. Sometimes we do too. When we become arrogant, relying on ourselves, man, we need a wake-up call too. But Peter needed a wake-up call so that he could see just how fragile he really was. Big, rough, tough Peter was fragile. He was fragile. And that's the animal that'll be forever connected to Peter's betrayal. The animal that would forever remind him of just how easily he would fall away. Maybe the animal that woke him up every day would be a reminder of how fragile he really could be apart from God's grace. And if there's one lesson that we can draw from all of this, it's that talk is so cheap. Lip service is so meaningless. It's so easy to talk the talk. But walking the walk, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where it is not always so easy. A couple weeks ago, a team of scientists in Italy were sentenced to prison for six years. Their crime... The Italian courts determined that they didn't adequately disseminate the information that they had about an impending earthquake which killed a lot of people. They had this information that could have saved people and they didn't do enough to get it out there. Let me ask you, if you were going to stand trial, if Peter was going to stand trial, being accused of not adequately representing their faith, not adequately representing what they knew, about Jesus and about what waits ahead if you're not right with Jesus, if you don't have your faith in Jesus, how many of us would be guilty? We're not that different from Peter. We're not. I mean, we we can say, "Wow, Peter, what a, what a horrible move!" But the fact is, man, we we're all right there with him. That's us. That's us too. Wow. I mean, I, I, you know, you see, it's, it's easy to claim devotion to Christ with our lips and in the safety of our homes, in the safety of our church, uh, you know, we can listen to worship music and sing along maybe while we're driving to work and nobody's with us, but what about when we're around people? What about when we're out in public? It's so easy for us to just keep those things hidden, keep those things hidden, the world and to deny him either with our lips or with our actions. When we're with friends or when we're with co-workers, people who don't know Jesus, it's so easy for us to betray him either with our lips or our actions as well. Peter was full of selfish ambition. And selfish ambition can be a horrible thing because it makes us arrogant. And it makes us think that we can be self-sufficient. And that's exactly where Peter is right now. And that's exactly where each one of us finds ourselves often as well. So how strong is your faith in Jesus really? Is it strong enough to endure and keep your testimony pure through times of intense trials? Is it strong enough to keep your testimony pure when you're you know, just, just walking and joking around with friends and co-workers? Or do things like arrogance, an attitude of self-sufficiency, maybe even bitterness leave us in a perpetual state of spiritual weakness. See, we all need discipline more than we need personal determination. We all need God's discipline in our lives, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, conviction more than we need personal determination. And we would be wise to never underestimate how vulnerable we are to falling because of pride. This would be something that Peter would unquestionably remember for the rest of his life, for the rest of his life, how he so arrogantly presumed that he was capable of doing the very thing he failed so, so miserably at, just remaining faithful to Jesus in a hard time. Like Peter, when we're closest to success, we are the most prone to failure. When we're at those spiritual highs, we are most vulnerable to falling to a spiritual low but it was because of this failure, it was because of Peter's failure, that he learned an even greater lesson, an even more important lesson, a lesson that would transform his life like nothing else, and that is that God's love and God's mercy are greater than all of our faults and failures. All the times we mess up, there's always grace. It's like a safety net when you're walking a tightrope. That safety net is always there. God's grace will always catch us. But don't wake up, don't wait for a wake-up call to embrace that truth. Don't wait. Because the more we embrace this truth, the more we'll grow and the more we will mature in our walk with the Lord because we'll learn to stop relying on ourselves so much and rely exclusively on Jesus because he's always faithful to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words penetrate the depths of our hearts. We know what you see. We know what's in our hearts, but we know that you know even better. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize our our weaknesses and teach us to rely on you. We thank you for being the good shepherd, the one who prepares the way for us, leading us sometimes through mountains and sometimes through valleys. Lord, we know that you are always working to make us more and more like you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would prepare the way for us to grow, that you would teach us to be humble in your presence, trusting more and more in you. Because we see, Lord, that you know what's coming, you know what we're capable of doing, you know that we are capable of falling away, just like these guys, Lord. Give us the strength to endure. It, and thank you that your grace never gives up on us. We love you. Teach us to live more and more for you. It was so much. thousands of people around the world you can go to our website bible study podcasts.org and you can make a donation on the right hand side by clicking on the support box again we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times god bless you thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus Take me deeper